And uh, we appreciate having uh, Russ Cottonwar here this morning with us and his uh, uh, family and uh, friends. And we appreciate him coming over here to uh, bring the message to us this morning. And be in uh, prayer for uh, Ian and Miranda. And uh, I texted her earlier this week, and they're having a wonderful time, and the weather has been beautiful. So just keep them in prayer. And um, also, uh, just uh, keep in mind that this is uh, Pastor Appreciation Month. So um, if you've not had a chance to send a card or have them over for a meal or something like that, I would uh, encourage you to do that. And uh, it's always a good always a good thing to say thank you to those people that uh, that we love and appreciate. So uh, keep them in prayer. And uh, as um, as Miranda is uh, uh, is. Uh, uh, pregnant and uh, and they're doing well and uh, we just really appreciate them and so just just uh, try to remember to say an extra an extra thank you to them. Uh, let's see here we have coming up the uh, trunk or treat coming up in uh, I guess that's uh, next week and so be in prayer for that as we have many 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 young people coming down through our parking lot. I would say with the uh, majority of them not knowing the Lord and um, we always put a little gospel track in there uh, in with their candy so that they can also um, um, hear the gospel as well any other announcements that need to be made yes Jane Yes, Donna. Okay. After church, fellowship time out back. So welcome to come out and have a cup of coffee and a, a cookie or whatever it is that we have. So in donuts. Amen. All right. Any other announcements this morning? All right. Well, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we do have to be here in your house today. We thank you for all that are able to be here today, and we think of all of those that are not, and for whatever reason, and we, we think of uh, Ian and Miranda and Nora as they're away. We pray that you give them safety while they're gone and as they'll be uh, traveling home. We just thank you for them. and. Again, we thank you for this Pastor Appreciation Month that we can uh, just give them a little extra extra love and attention. And uh, we pray that you just continue to watch over them and their family. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the history that it has been here for so long. We thank you that we are still, through your grace, that we are still preaching the gospel and people are continuing to be saved and we thank you for that we pray that you just watch over our service today we pray that you would uh, guide us in each thing that is said and done and we pray that you would uh, your holy spirit would speak through us this morning as he brings the message we pray all these things in jesus precious name amen amen and uh, <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ephesians, uh, starting with uh, chapter 1, verse 3. And if you'd like to turn there with me, it is, number, uh, it is page number 917 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 917. going to find one that has a little bit larger print for me. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. And uh, <clears throat> my voice is uh, not what it uh, sometimes is, and so I'm going to have Katie come up uh, and uh, lead the singing with me this morning. So let's stand and sing in the blue book, number 104, O oh, Worship the King, number 104. Forty. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, right, wrong place, yes, number 43, that's right, sorry about that, I had it marked here, <laughs> number 43, there we go, all four verses. Thank you. 
my voice just has been getting uh, a little worse recently, so I apologize for that. But and now with the uh, ushers come forward for the morning offering, please. And uh, uh, the doxology this morning is on the back of your uh, bulletin. We give the but thine own. And, uh, and if you have any uh, prayer requests, uh, you can just put them in the uh, in the prayer slip in the uh, pew in front of you, and we will pray for those requests at uh, at our prayer time. All right. seated thank you things when I write it down say nothing if I don't write it down all right we come to our time of prayer and uh, I'm so thankful that we know a God that hears and answers our prayers and uh, we all go through difficult times and and uh, the Lord allows us to go through difficult times in our lives uh, that he might that he might receive the glory and that we would be strengthened in our in our Christian life and dear Lord and Heavenly Father again we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your house and we thank you that you are a God that knows each one of us and hears each one of us when we come to you in prayer and you know each one of us in the uh, the difficulties that we go through in our lives and and the joys and the and the good things that happen in our lives and I mean you have orchestrated all of these things we thank you for guiding us we thank you for our salvation that we have through your son Jesus because of his death and burial and resurrection to new life that we can have that life as well we thank you for um, the opportunity to be in the pulpit this morning and for the for your word we pray that as we are here this morning that we would hear your word and that we wouldn't just hear it that we wouldn't be just hearers of the word but that we would be doers 
as well, and that we might share the gospel in whatever feeble way that we might be able to, to those around us, that they might come to know you as well. And uh, we pray also for uh, Samaritan's Purse and the opportunity that we've had to give to that for the last number of years. We pray that you would be with that ministry as they minister both with the Operation Christmas Child, but many other, uh, many other things that they're doing around the world and probably in the Ukraine as well uh, and so many other places uh, where there's a need for food and shelter and clothing and those things that people are going through, uh, those difficult times in life, whatever they may be. And we pray that uh, you would just watch over that ministry and that you would help them to uh, continue to be able to share your word. We pray that again that you would watch over, um, watch over Ian and Miranda as, and Nora as they're traveling, give them safety. We just thank you for this, uh, uh, for them and their ministry to us here in our church. We pray that you just bring them back safely to us, revived and refreshed, that they would be able to continue to serve here in this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And if you would now stand as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Um, and it's on the back of your book, I mean, on the back of your bulletin. If you'd like to stand, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you would stand with me, uh, remain standing, I should say, and turn with me to number uh, 104. 104, O worship the king.
and standing. I kind of uh, kind of move through the order of service here all on my own. So why don't we remain standing and sing number uh, 342, Rock of Ages. 342. Thank you, Katie, <laughs> and I really apologize this morning. Uh, <clears throat> just want to, uh, again, welcome uh, Pastor Russ Cottonwire uh, to be with us this morning, and uh, we appreciate uh, him coming over to uh, bring the word to us this morning. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you again, um, and uh, just want to thank you. I thank you for supporting and encouraging and loving your pastor. I meet with Ian quite often, and um, he seems good, and that's, uh, that's a testament to you guys. And uh, thank you for mentioning Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, I just recall the many years that I was at Fayette and how the church supported my wife and I in that, and uh, it really goes a long way um, to keeping your pastor encouraged and uh, energized for the work. And so I'm glad he has this chance uh, today to have a day off. Let's pray together. And if you, after we're done, if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126, that's where we'll be this morning. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, for all that you are and all that you give to us, Lord God, by your mercy. I pray, our Father, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to this word this morning. You bring your truth to bear and wash over us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might do your will in all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Psalm 126 is where we're going to be this morning. Some years ago, an author by the name of Phyllis McGinley wrote these words. She said, I have read that during the process of canonization, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in the candidate. And although I have not been able to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness is not a sacred attribute. Now, come clean. Let's be honest. All of us know people, Christians even, who have a hard time exhibiting any kind of 
fun-loving joyousness. And I've heard Christians at times described as a bunch of stiff, sourpuss killjoys who wouldn't know the concept of fun if it was staring them right in the face. You heard that before? Well, obviously, this stereotype is a tremendously exaggerated untruth. The fact is, is that anyone who truly knows the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ and life in Christ has discovered that there's no greater enjoyment, no greater cause for joyful laughter, no greater impetus for singing and exuberant celebration than the deep, settled conviction that God has delivered us from spiritual captivity and that we are on the road home. Amen? Amen? Joy is characteristic of the Christian pilgrimage. And it is second only in the scripture listed um, in Paul's spiritual list of spiritual fruit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, right? So, but where does that leave the many people who experience the crushing blows of, of pain, depression, and sadness? I know there are people, Christians this morning, that are struggling with maintaining their joy. So where does this leave them? When the warm sunlight of gladness seems to be permanently eclipsed by the shadows of loneliness, possibly, and hurt. Have you ridden that train before? Many of us have. Are you there right now, possibly? It's in those times that a dangerous thing can happen. We can begin to look at our lack of joy and conclude, well, I must be a miserable failure as a disciple of Christ. Maybe I'm not even a Christian at all because Christians are supposed to have joy, full joy, and I don't. Therefore, the logic goes, I must not be a very good Christian. Or maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Bad logic. And it's even worse theology. Fact is, as one man has said, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It's a consequence. Let me repeat that. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It's what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. Is that right? We cannot make ourselves joyful, at least not for very long. True joy is not self-motivated, personally manufactured, financially purchased, or politically arranged, as much as we like to think so. It comes only as the result of hearing God's voice in the midst of our pain and deciding to live in response to him. Only he can restore our joy and renew our strength. And rest assured, no matter how dark your cave, he will find you there. No matter how deep your abyss, he will descend there. No matter how cold and lonely your prison might be, he can release you from it. He is a relentless pursuer of his people. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to hear a moving account of how completely God can and will restore joy to a hurting heart. The speaker had told of how his personal friend, an Episcopal priest, walked into his office at, at his church on a Monday morning, wrote a hasty letter of resignation to the vestry, then he went back to his house and he sat down at the kitchen table and he wrote a letter to his wife and his three children, all under the age of 10, that he was abandoning them. And he fled then to a logging camp here in New England. He took a job in Vermont as a logger and one Saturday afternoon in January, it was about 10 degrees below zero, heavy snow, the priest was sitting in his portable aluminum trailer that he'd rented, and the only source of heat was this tiny little portable aluminum heater. And the heater suddenly quit and died, and within minutes, the temperature inside that trailer was down to zero. Shivering and in a fit of rage, the priest picked up the heater, and he threw it through the window, broke the window, and he shouted at Jesus, I hate you! Get out of my life. 
I'm finished with this Christian junk. It's all over. Then he sank to his knees, defeated and sobbing. And then the speaker said, in the bright darkness of faith, that man heard a voice from within him say, it's okay, Kevin. I understand. I'm with you. And I'm for you. And then he heard, what he thought he heard was Jesus weeping from within him. And he knew right then that Christ felt what he was feeling. And it was an overwhelming experience of intimacy for him. And that same afternoon, Kevin Martin packed his bags, returned to Columbus to be reconciled with his family and his church, and he went on to pastor one of the most dynamic, alive, and spirit-filled Episcopal churches in the United States of America. My friends, joy can be restored. Our strength can be renewed. Joy comes to us, says author Eugene Peterson, because God knows how to wipe away tears. Amen? And in his resurrection work, create the smile of new life. Joy is what God gives, not what we work up. But we can do something. We can act on the principle that restored joy will come when we decide to live in the abundance of God's grace and trust him to renew our strength even when the feelings aren't there. Now, we don't have to go through what Kevin Martin went through to experience restored joy. Most of us will not likely be pulled to such extremes. Yet, whether we find ourselves in the depths of a traumatic experience, the dark night of the soul, or we're touched by the arid winds of a spiritual dry spell, we can experience restored joy in the Lord. You want to know how? Psalm 126 seems to give us a little bit of a pattern. It takes us through the inner struggle of a godly people searching for renewed strength and restored joy. Let's read through Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. And he who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with the shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Those last two verses are probably the most familiar to you, right? Psalm 126 is part of a group of psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, also known as the Pilgrim Psalms or the Songs of Ascents. Now these psalms, according to scholars, were likely sung by the Hebrews as they made their way up to Jerusalem um, as they, to their great worship festivals. And the journey to Jerusalem for a Jew, as you probably know if you've done any study of the geography, was always upward, right? It was always upward. Geographically, it was the highest city in Palestine. Now, the Jews made this journey three times every year. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus made these journeys as well. It's kind of a comforting thought, I think, um, to realize that the very words of this psalm were likely sung by Jesus himself, knowing that he himself was the ultimate fulfillment of them. Spiritually, contained in these psalms are some of the most important words of counsel, encouragement, admonition, and identification with the Christian pilgrimage of faith and discipleship available to us as believers. Our journey is, in a way, always an upward call to the heavenly Jerusalem. Is that right? It is an ascent, so to speak. Sometimes it's a struggle. 
often exhausting and many times discouraging. But along the way, we have these ancient songs, these psalms, to help us remember three vitally important things. Who God is, who we are, and where we're going. This psalm gives us the all-important reminder that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen? If we learn to sing it well, we will discover the power for renewed joy, a prayer for a rediscovered joy and restored joy, and God's promise of reestablished joy. Let me be clear. This psalm, however, is not a formula for reclaiming your joy, but simple steps toward a renewal of your faith. When the joy in your faith is seemingly gone, when the joy is kind of out the window, it helps to follow the pattern of Psalm 126. And the first thing we see here in this psalm in verses 1 and 2 is I think we need to remember the power of joy in your past. Remember the power of joy in your past. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream, the psalmist says. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with joyful shouting, and they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Charles Spurgeon once said, nothing strengthens faith more effectually than the memory of a previous experience. Is that right? So I think what we're getting at here is a good thing to practice is to refresh your memory of what God has done. Because joy has a history, doesn't it? Joy has a history. Sometimes we need to review that history. We need to fill our minds with the stories and accounts of God's acts, not just in human history as a whole, but in our own personal history as well. For example, I can look back over the 34 years, the past 34 years of my time as a pastor of Fayette Baptist Church, and vividly recall certain services which were filled with incredible spirit of joy, an incredible spirit of joy. Times when God moved with power, lives were changed, people reconciled, souls were saved. We saw them, we felt them, we touched them. They're what people often refer to as the warm fuzzies, right? And they don't happen every Sunday, do they? Sometimes they don't happen for long stretches of time. And we find off and on that the warm fuzzies are replaced by the cold pricklies. And when that happens, we can get seriously, seriously discouraged. And that was especially true in the last few years of COVID. Let me tell you something. I, now that I'm not a pastor, per se, anymore of a church, I spend a lot of my time meeting with pastors of churches. Every week, I'm meeting with two or three pastors. And my ministry to them is to just be a listening ear, to encourage them, to just let them dump. Because let me tell you, there's a lot of discouragement in pastors out there right now. This post-COVID thing and all that went on in the last two and a half years or so, socially, culturally, politically, all of that stuff has taken a major toll on pastors. And so I get to sit and listen to them and hopefully encourage them with some words of encouragement. We can always look back, though, at those defining moments when God moved and remembered, and sometimes, and, and we remember, and sometimes I have to encourage them to remember, you, God has done a lot of good things in this ministry that you've been part of. Don't throw in the towel yet. That's exactly what the enemy wants. Every Christian has experiences that they can point to in the past when they have been ambushed by the overpowering joy of what God has done. The day of your salvation, for example. Time when God had miraculously provided just what you needed at just the right time. Times when a friend said just the right word or gave just the right touch. When God answered the prayer you never dreamed he would answer. Just as Israel 
as they sung this psalm, recalled the time when God released the people who were in exile, when God restored the fortunes of those who were stripped of every ounce of happiness that they had. We can remember when the Lord brought us back from what seemed like a hopeless captivity. Can you remember that? What an incredible thing. So profound was the experience that it seemed unreal, like a dream. That's what the psalm says. God's deliverance for Israel was a vivid national memory. It was miraculous. It was such an overwhelming, mighty work of God that the psalmist writes here, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And the Hebrew term joyful shouting, you know what it literally means? It literally means creaking and represents this really shrill sound. Like when your little three or four year old comes running through the house and hits that, that, that frequency that makes your whole head vibrate, like it's gonna explode, right? Picture the high-pitched screams of a stadium filled with people when their favorite team is winning. That's the memory. They were so full of joy because of God's deliverance that they couldn't contain themselves any longer. It was just the opposite of the reaction that they had in Psalm 137. Hold your finger in Psalm 126 and look at Psalm 137 for a moment with me. We'll compare these two. Psalm 137, the first four verses. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Stark contrast from what we just read in Psalm 126, right? Psalm 137 is really predating Psalm 126 in Israel's history. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Since the angst in that. But now look at Psalm 126 and verses 1 and 2. Just the opposite, right? We were like, when the Lord brought back the captives, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Have there been times like that in your life? That God's delivered you from your angst and your sorrow? and you felt like leaping for joy and screaming to the hilltops? Write those things down. Write them down and review them. Keep a journal. Read it and reread it often. Map it out on paper. The key events of your life, complete with twists and turns, tangibly reminding yourself of how God has worked in your life and when he worked in your life. That's what the Bible was for Israel. It was a journal a life map, recorded reminders of who they were and who they became with the Lord's guidance. The pages of the Old Testament are splashed with the ink of memorial markers identifying not only the pitfalls of their history, but also the joy of God's acts of deliverance. So profound are God's defining moments in the lives of his people that even those on the outside looking in can see the reason for joy. So not only should we refresh our memory of what God has done, but it also helps, to, helps us to remind ourselves of what others have said. Look at verse 2 here again, the second half of the verse. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. See, even, even people that aren't believers will see what great things God has done in your lives. And what things is he talking about? Well, again, you can find them on practically every page of the Old Testament. Moses writes of the exodus from slavery in Egypt. In one breath, they were crying to the Lord for deliverance. A few chapters later, they're on the other side of the Red Sea, singing at the top of their lungs. Just read Exodus 15. The Song of Moses. A few books later, in the Old Testament, we, re we meet David, who is running for his life away from Saul. And before you know it, he's the king. 
The Psalms are a collection of his songs. In fact, this is one of them. Uh, these, are, these Psalms are a collection of his songs documenting the great things that God has done, right? Throughout the prophets, we read of God's promised deliverance, a coming redeemer who will once and for all liberate his people from not only physical but spiritual bondage. And further, the pages of the New Testament identify the great things that God has done through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, for all who place their faith in him. Amen? If your joy is gone, take a minute to look back. What great things has the Lord done for you? On every page of the Old Testament, we find what God had done for Israel. On every page of the New Testament, we find what God has done for all of us who have come to faith in Christ. An old saint once said these words. He said, when I grow weary of well-doing, when my faith sags and my spiritual heart faints, I remember. I go back to my former life before I became captive to God. And I take a long walk up and down the street of my sinfulness. And when I return... I am so full of thanksgiving to God, to the God who saved me, so full of the mercy and grace of God that my heart is once again singing and my feet dancing with joy. When we remember that the Lord has done great things for us, then we put ourselves in a position to do the second thing here in this psalm, and that is to reaffirm the preciousness of joy in the present. Look at verses 3 and 4. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Circle those three words in your Bible, if you write in your Bibles. We are glad. Because they're the hinge of this psalm. They're the exact middle of this psalm. Let me ask you, when's the last time you can remember really saying these words? We are glad. You see, joy not only builds on the past, but it borrows from the future and it practices the promises of Scripture in the present. People who experience the joy of the Lord now, people who can say we are glad Bear fruit for God now. Amen? They're not waiting around for things to get better before they will serve God. Friends, think about it. There is this deep, deep, and inextricable connection to Jesus' words in John chapter 15 between having full joy and bearing much fruit. Go back and reread that chapter sometime. You see, the world needs a joyful, witness-bearing church, doesn't it? Especially in these days. A glad church is a church that will transform society. If we're going to experience the joy of the Lord here and now, it will be because we are confident that God doesn't change his dealings with us. He has a pattern of producing joy in the past. He has promised to bring us joy in the future according to verses 5 and 6, which we'll see in a minute. Therefore, we can expect him to restore our joy in the present when we are active in his purposes. That truth is reinforced in a couple of ways. Number one, when we rehearse the proof of God's faithfulness in the past, and we've already talked about that, but verse 3 says, the Lord has done great things for us and we're glad. But we, not, we must be careful not to make those memories of the past merely monuments because they're not just monuments they're trail markers let me explain monuments are erected to attract tourists right stirring the nostalgic warm feelings of things that have gone has gone on in the past have gone on but trail markers however are footprints leading us forward in our pilgrimage don't they we're not tourists. Christians are not tourists in this world. We're pilgrims, aren't we? As William Faulkner aptly points out, a monument only says, at least I got this far. 
while a footprint or trail marker says, this is where I was when I moved again. Joy in the present doesn't merely come from rehearsing the proof of God's past faithfulness, but it is the result of focusing on God's present activities while we move toward his future promises. And that focus is clarified through genuine prayer for revival and restoration. Look at verse 4. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. That's a prayer. Restore our captivity. This psalmist's prayer was that God would finish the restoration completely. In other words, he cries, the work's not done, Lord. Bring back all the captives. We who occupy the land are but a small remnant. Now for Israel, that cry is still heard. Restore us, Lord. Bring us back, right? Because they're not fully restored. For the church, the cry is equally fervent. Fill the kingdom, Lord. Bring all those in who are held in captivity into the joy of salvation. That's the prayer. Let them return in overflowing numbers like the streams in the south. Other translations say, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is a desert south of Judah. And the streams are nothing but hard, dry, parched riverbeds carved through the desert, but are transformed, believe it or not, in a matter of hours during a downpour in the rainy season into torrents of water overflowing their banks. And the transformation, I'm told, is absolutely dramatic. Overnight, the surrounding desert can be turned into a flourishing place of grass, and flowers overnight. That is the thrust of the psalmist's prayer here. He knows that if God can physically transform the dryness of the Negev, desert ditches into overflowing streams of life and beauty, overnight, that joy can be restored that dramatically to your parched soul and mine. He knows that we, as well as multitudes of others, can be delivered from captivity. And you know what his desire is? His desire is for the exiles to come home in abundance. Let me ask a question. Is that your desire? Is it mine? Is that our prayer? Are, we sat are you satisfied with the size of this Christian community? Shouldn't we long for empty seats to be filled in all of our churches? For the aisles to overflow in abundance? Not for the sake of numbers, mind you, but for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Is your joy waning? Maybe it's because your involvement in the Great Commission is not where it should be. I have to ask myself that all the time. Let me ask you this question. Who are you praying for to come to know Jesus right now? This rhetorical. When was the last time you shared your faith with someone? When was the last time you felt the excitement of introducing someone to Jesus Christ and helping them to become his committed follower? When was the last time you felt the joy of investing yourself and your resources for the service and glory of God? Jesus said in Luke 15, 10, he said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know what? That joy can be our joy as well. However, in the process of all that we also have to recognize, one of, the, one, one of the most difficult principles of life in Christ, and that is this, is that joy does not exclude sorrow. Christian joy, unlike the world's idea of it, is not an escape from sorrow, is it? It's often a settled contentment in the midst of sorrow. Consequently, as we walk this road of faith and begin to understand the character of God's joy, we not only remember the power of joy in our past and reinforce our practice of joy in the present, 
But finally, we must recognize the principle of joy as a future promise. Verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, we would like to just take 5 and 6 and take them right out of this psalm, right? Because then it would be all about joy. But consider this principle in, in verse 5. Joy comes on the other side of tears. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Listen, there's no fine print in God's word. He's totally upfront with us. Sometimes, many times, they are going to be tears. Service in the kingdom is fraught with pain. There are discouraging times, agony over sin, tears shed over souls, weeping over hard-heartedness, disappointment, betrayal, persecution, poverty, rejection and abandonment. But let's be honest, characteristically, we try to eliminate these things that hurt us. We avoid confrontation. We take pills for pain. We hold back from taking risks. We refuse to sacrifice, resist deep relationships so we don't get hurt, and run from responsibility, all the while immersing ourselves in entertainment and indulging our passions in an endless and fruitless pursuit of happiness. That's the American dream, isn't it? That avoidance has even entered the church. We don't want to sow in tears, as the scripture says, so we don't sow. We don't want to plow hard ground. It's a lot of work. So we end up not planting. Is there any wonder that there's no harvest and there's no joy? The two are inextricably connected, according to this. Refamiliarize yourself with the life of Jesus, for example, the apostles, the early Christian church, any missionary biography you'll read, and you will find that joy is the result of a long season of blood, sweat, and tears, and sacrificial blood, right? Think about the cross. Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus went to the cross. He endured the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him on the other side of it. True joy is not found in escaping the pain associated with sowing seeds of truth, but by plunging wholeheartedly into God's work, regardless of the suffering that we may encounter. And through it all, we find that God is a dependable, good, good father, don't we? And that his word is trustworthy and his promises are sure. And we can camp on that promise. Verse 6 says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. If we're faithful to follow Christ, even when it hurts, the outcome will be joy, the scripture says. Guaranteed. Weeping may last for the night, wrote David, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Amen? And you might be ready to give up talking to your family about Christ. The soil seems too dry, too parched, too fruitless. You may think it's not worth the nightmare to try and farm that soil. Let me encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up. Weep you may, but so you must, because joy comes in the morning. I'm sure glad my wife didn't give up on me. I wouldn't be here right now if she gave up on me 40 years ago. Charles Spurgeon said, gospel tears are not lost. When it comes to the kingdom, there is joyful return for tearful labor. Therefore, my beloved brethren, echoes the Apostle Paul, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Well, let me, let me wrap this up. If I can indulge you for just a couple more minutes, I want to tell you this true story. In a sermon entitled, God's Ways Are Unreasonable, missionary De professor Deltar uses this powerful illustration of, from West Africa where he served for 14 years with the Assemblies of God Church. I grew up in a preacher's home in the little towns of Minnesota and South Dakota, he said, and spent most of my free time with Deacon's kids on John Deere tractors, 
international harvesters, cases, Minneapolis Molines, and I learned how to drill oats, plant corn, and cultivate. And never once did I see a deacon behave like Psalm 126 says. When, what was there to weep about at sowing time? I was always perplexed by this scripture, he says, until I went to the Sahel, a vast stretch of savanna more than 4,000 miles wide just under the Sahara Desert. With a climate much like the Bible lands, in the Sahel, all the moisture comes in a four-month period of time, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of water falls for eight solid months. The ground cracks from dryness and so do your hands and feet. The winds off the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air and it then comes slowly drifting across West Africa as a fine, fine grit. It gets in your mouth, gets inside your watch and stops it. Gets inside your refrigerator if you have one. The year's food, of course, must all be grown in four months and people grow sorghum or milo in the fields not larger than this sanctuary right here. Their only tools are the strength of their backs and the short-handled hoe. No Massey Ferguson's here. The average annual income is between $85 and $100 per person, per year. October and November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full. The harvest has come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day, one about 10 in the morning, and after they've been to the field a while, the other just after sundown. December comes and the granaries start to recede. Families omit the morning meal. After they've been um, to the field a while, they just don't have any more food for two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. People feel the clutch of hunger once again. The meal shrinks even more during March and children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. April is the month that haunts my memory. He says, the African dusk is quiet. You see no jet engines, no traffic noises to break the stillness. The dust filters down through the air and sounds carry for long distances. April is the month you hear the babies crying at twilight. From the village over here, and from the village over there, their mother's milk has now stopped. Parents go at this time of year to the bush country where they scrape bark from certain trees. They dig up roots as well. They collect leaves and grind it all together to make a thin gruel. They may pawn a chair, a cooking pot, or a bicycle tire in order to buy a little more grain from those wealthy enough to have any, but most often the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then inevitably it happens. A six or seven year old boy comes running to his father one day with a sudden excitement saying, Daddy, Daddy, we've got grain. Son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. I reached up and put my hand down in there, and Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to mommy so she can make flour so tonight our tummies can be full. And the father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that, he softly explains. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May, and when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall, and he does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes to the field, and I've seen it, he says, with tears streaming down his face, he takes the precious seed and he throws it away. He scatters it in the dirt, why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything he wants with it. But the act of sowing, it hurts him so much that he weeps and he cries while he's doing it. But as the African pastors say when they preach on Psalm 126, brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Don't expect 
to rejoice later on unless you've been willing to sow in tears. Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You need your joy restored? Learn the lessons of Psalm 126. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It was in the past, it is now, and it will be tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and your truth. Thank you that you bring it to bear on our lives. And I pray, our Father, that whatever we have learned from this psalm that we would put into practice, even in its most minuscule form, Lord God, you have given it to us for a reason, that we might be more conformed to the image of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing the uh, doxology. <clears throat> <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.